Horrible beyond conception was the change which had taken place in my best friend, Crawford Tillinghast. I had not seen him since that day, two months and a half before, when he had told me toward what goal his physical and metaphysical researches were leading, when he had answered my odd and almost frightened remonstrances by driving me from his laboratory and his house in a burst of fanatical rage. I had known that he had now remained mostly shut in the attic laboratory with that accursed electrical machine, eating little and excluding even the servants. But I had not thought that a brief period of ten weeks could so alter and disfigure any human creature. It is not pleasant to see a stout man suddenly grown thin, and it is even worse when the baggy skin becomes yellowed or grayed, the eyes sunken, circled, and uncannily glowing, the forehead veined and corrugated, and the hands tremulous and twitching. And if added to this, there be a repellent unkeptness, a wild disorder of dress, a bushiness of dark hair, white at the roots, and an unchecked growth of pure white beard on a face once clean-shaven, the cumulative effect is quite shocking. But such was the aspect of Crawford Tillinghast on the night his half-coherent message brought me to his door after my weeks of exile, such a specter that trembled as it admitted me, candle in hand, and glanced furtively over its shoulder, as if fearful of unseen things in the ancient lonely house set back from Benevolent Street. You are listening to TMB DOS. They must be destroyed on site. The following podcast may contain adult language, conversations surrounding adult situations that may not be suitable for younger listeners, as well as spoilers for the films discussed on this podcast. You have been warned. Now, come on in. Destroyed on sight. Okay, welcome to episode 103 of They Must Be Destroyed on Sight. I'm your host, Lee. It ate him, bit off his head like a gingerbread man, Russell. And I'm currently joined by my co-host, Daniel. This guy was in some weird shit. Harper, how you doing, sir? I've got Lafroig in a glass and beer on standby, so I'm doing just fine. I've got beer in a glass and Lafroig on standby, so we're uh, we're doing pretty well. <laughs> It's like we're mirror universe opposites of one another. Well, yeah. I mean, also, you, you have lots of hair. I have virtually none. <laughs> it's it's the Canada-U.S. relationship in a nutshell. Yeah. yeah. 
<laughs> and uh, we're hoping to be joined by Paul. He supposedly is, is supposed to join us. Hopefully he'll join in while we're uh, going through the house cleaning here. We're going to be looking at more Lovecraft stuff tonight, some Lovecraft-inspired shenanigans. We're going to be looking at From Beyond from 1986. Um, but before that, I will mention that our friends over at Slaughter Film just recently looked at this film as well. And as much as I love Slaughter Film, Fuck you guys, because you covered a bunch of points that I was going to bring up on this uh, podcast, <laughs> you asshole. But no, still great podcast, and they did uh, From Beyond, and it's uh, well worth checking out, and I'm going to link it in the show notes. Yeah, I'll throw over to you there, Daniel. Uh, anything you've watched in the last little while, if you, you want to talk about? Sure. I actually did watch the one we did, the one you guys did last week. The Resurrected. Uh, the, the Resurrected. I was having kind of a weird day that day and decided not to... Uh, jump in on that i was kind of tired anyway uh and i had very little to say about the movie um, <laughs> the effects were good i liked the i liked the practical effects that was really nice and i sort of liked the idea of sort of repurposing the lovecraft thing into a detective story right and uh, i'm always going to have a fondness for these director video aesthetics circa 1991 but at the same time it was not you know i was like that's those three sentences was all i had to say about the film yeah. so uh, i just decided not to uh not to jump on that one. Although I'm sure you guys had a good time. I have not had a chance to listen to the episode yet. Yeah. Two other things I thought I'd mention. I uh, currently have Amazon Prime. So all the 007 movies, all the James Bond movies are available on Amazon Prime, oh, yeah. if you remember. Uh, and I haven't seen most of them. So I watched Dr. No for the first time. Oh, really? Um, yeah. And the reason I really wanted to mention it is just because the first hour of that film is very much a like Chandler-esque you know, um, yeah. Philip Marlowe's story. It's just sort of like international intrigue rather than, you know, heiresses murdering one another sort of, sort of yeah. thing. Um, <laughs> but I mean, you look at, you look at that and you look at Connery and that, and he's just like, I mean, he really does feel like a more generic Bogart in, in a lot of ways mm-hmm. to me, you know, he, he he's charming, but he's sort of blandly charming. You know, it's, it's funny when you, when you think about like where these films have come and uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not a Bond scholar. In fact, I'm, you know, I'm just. I've decided to watch them in order, just as I get around to it, just to uh, just to have seen them all. But you know, you look at you look at like where the like the stereotypical Bond, and then you look at the first hour of Doctor No. It's cool, you know. It's not doing really any of that. It's really much yeah. more like you know, boring functionary kind of wanders around and has meetings with people practically. Yeah, yeah. And then Ursula Andress shows up, <laughs> <laughs> and the film dramatically changes into let's just watch Ursula Andress be amazing for yeah. uh, 30 minutes. And then uh, there's the henchman layer and, uh, you know, nuclear intrigue. And uh, yeah, I had a good time watching the film. I had a good time with the film. It is a good film, but it's not my favorite Connery one by a long shot. You're right. Connery's not that interesting in that film. And I think he doesn't really start picking up until From Russia With Love. I think that's where he starts to hit his stride with it. And sure. from Russia, from Russia with Loves, the much more interesting spy movie. It just has some cooler stuff going on, and you got a really great villain in Robert Shaw instead of a kind of uh, stereotyped white guy playing an Asian villain in Doctor yeah. No. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of that too. I mean, you know the 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 subtle racism was eclipsed by the overt racism in that script. <laughs> so you know, just said like, let's just let's just not even mention that aspect. I mean, everybody. It's my go-to move is to say, yeah, all this shit is fucking racist as hell. But yeah, I mean, you, you know, you can get past it. I mean, those, those Fu Manchu movies that uh, Christopher Lee did back in the day, right? They're still a lot of fun, even though it's just so goddamn dumb not to actually put an actual Asian in in the role. But you know, 
Yeah. It is what I mean, it is. It, it is like one of those things where, you know, Pulp Fiction clearly had this, you know, particularly in the 30s and 40s, there was this obsession with the Orient, you know. Yeah, yellow um, scare. And uh, when you when you run into that, and then when you start adapting that for uh, more modern, you know, at the time, modern audiences, and then you sort of embrace that, you know, to a certain degree, the, uh, the sort of legacy of history is just with you regardless. Like, there's no mm-hmm. way to really do that well, which I think is part of the problem with the uh, the Iron Fist uh, series, um, which I have not uh, seen yet. That's but a lot of the commentary yeah. is basically like, well, the characters kind of devolved from this sort of thing in the seventies, which was sort of looking forward at the time, but had its own. And then, like, just the decision to adapt it, sort of like bring, like, look, you're just going to have to run into this one way or another. There's just no way to avoid it. Mm-hmm. Or like Although- the Doctor Strange movie, which I did see. Um, you know, mm-hmm. avoids a lot of it just in terms of its casting and in terms of the, just sort of the way that it does kind of treat Benedict Cumberbatch as the sort of white interloper kind of entering this. And there are this sort of, there, there's this multi-ethnic casting, which sort of like blunts it to some degree. Yeah. Um, and they, and they change the idea of the uh, quote unquote ancient one in that, whereas it can be anybody basically. So right. it, it doesn't necessarily have to be an Asian mystic kind of thing, you know? Uh, one but, more thing I watched. Yeah. Oh, go, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. No, I, I I do have something to add uh, when I mention what I've watched uh, is, is, is pertaining to the Iron Fist, but uh, I'll, I'll let you sure. go. No, I just had one more movie I thought I'd mention just while we were um, sitting here. I did watch The Founder. Um, this is the uh, Michael Keaton film about the oh, creation um, of McDonald's. Right, right. Michael Keaton is really good in this. I mean, you know, I, I'm a fan of Michael Keaton. I have been since I was a kid. I think he's a really interesting kind of underrated dramatic actor in a lot of ways um he's good in this i think the script does him no favors i think it got some oscar buzz at the time it was released but also uh was kind of recognized as not being very good (laughs) the issue with the film is it's sort of trying to do the wasn't mcdonald's this great innovative idea in the 50s thing and isn't mcdonald's this kind of terrible consumerist thing and or in, in the sort of capitalist exploitation of it and trying to uh, do the story of this guy. And it can't really decide if, if Ray Kroc was a true believer who sort of like lost his way or if he was just a smarmy salesman to begin with. And, and the fact that it's based on his own memoir see, and the fact that McDonald's clearly had to like get on board with some aspects of this production <laughs> um, because they're using logos and shit. I mean, there's no right. way McDonald's was not, didn't clear this to, to some degree. It, it does feel a little bit like it's, it's this sanitized version, but it's still trying to be this sort of dark, there will be blood kind of narrative. And it just, it, it doesn't quite work. There's some great performances in it. It's got Nick Offerman from Parson Rec. Uh, mm-hmm. He's one of the brothers, and John Carroll Lynch, who okay. uh, was Zodiac. obviously in Zodiac and in Fargo. Yeah, uh, the other McDonald brother, and uh, so the, those three actors just you know they, they anything's going to be good when you have a scene with those three people in it. From the stuff I read about it, it seemed like there was sort of a pro small business, anti big business kind of message in it. Is, is, are you saying it yeah. probably doesn't quite hit that mark? As, it, as well it, as I mean. I mean, it definitely is sort of playing that angle because it does treat the the two brothers as sort of like they've been fucked over by Ray Ray, Ray Kroc, which is true. Right. And they were really innovative and they were really like actually built this whole idea of this speedy system. It does sort of uh, overlook certain aspects of like their history and the fact that they were trying to franchise and that they sort of sold the system to other places. And that's so, mm-hmm. some, of the, some of the history. I did kind of look up some of the history and it gets a little bit lost. Yeah, I mean, it basically tells the story of how Ray Kroc, like, fucked... Or is it Roy? I think it's Roy. Um, 
Um, can't remember. Anyway, it's it's it tells the story of how this dude fucked over the McDonald brothers. Yeah, which is true, but it also seems to sort of elide certain details, and it's just structured strangely. Like there's a there's basically a montage in the middle of the film, and then at the other end of it, Michael Keaton is being an absolute dick and drinking all the time, and yet the montage sequence is all about like how he's getting more successful. And so, so you can just kind of end up like, well, what is he, is he, is it, is he hubristic? I don't know. It's unclear rather than nuanced. I think it's kind of the problem. Like they're aiming for this sort of complex portrait of this man. And yet, and, and while I think Keaton's giving it his all, I think fundamentally the material just doesn't, there's just not enough material there for, for the film to work with. It just doesn't quite work on those terms. It feels like it's trying to do a couple of different things and um, serving some different masters and kind of not really succeeding in that. Yeah, that's on Netflix right now, isn't it? It is. Yeah, that's why yeah. I watched it. I should, I should, yeah, I should check that out. Sounds sounds interesting. Yeah, I'll probably give it a shot. And it's uh, it's a it's a little bit over long too. I mean, it's over two yeah. hours long. And, oh, really? You know, yeah, it's it's like two ten or something like that. Um, oh shit! And uh, I was I was kind of thinking like an hour forty five is a is a more reasonable length. And and I think that <laughs> partly that's because they throw in a bunch of like pro McDonald's propaganda at the beginning. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> like the magical creation of McDonald's. So it does feel like, to a certain degree, they they uh, sort of had to, uh, yeah. So, and it's a, it's a very effectively produced like sequence. I mean, there's there's basically the, the uh, McDonald's brothers and in, in Crocs sit in a uh, in a diner and they explain like the process of how they came up with the system and you know like it's it's very effectively done. But it's also like, man, do we really need to spend 15 minutes just watching them <laughs> explain how they came up with the concept of this is how we're gonna serve food fast. Yeah. <laughs> we're 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 gonna we're gonna take fifteen minutes to explain why every minimum wage worker wants to kill themselves. <laughs> yeah, and the, the the employees of the I mean, like the lowest level people we ever really get in contact with on the in the film are sort of the like franchisees, like the managers oh, of this thing. Geez. So it's okay. absolutely avoiding the uh, the realities of working for McDonald's. Right. Even up to, I mean, the film ends in like 1971. So, yeah, I'm I'm thinking this might be a Wrong With Authority episode at some point. That yeah. sounds like it should be, yeah. yeah, really yeah. It's, uh, but I don't know, like, after we did the big short, I don't know that we need to, like, revisit the, the ravages of capitalism quite so soon. But Well, yeah, and also I, I, I kind of think you won't have as much venom as you got from, like, Wolf of Wall Street and stuff <laughs> no, like that. No, no. It's, it's not that evil, you know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Only thing I really watched in the last little while is I uh, binged the uh, Defenders series on Netflix. Sure. Uh, watch out, Mike Murphy. Here's where you can cut out for five minutes where we talk about superhero shit. Pretty goddamn good. Does fix some of the problems of Iron Fist, where his character kind of grows a little bit from a spoiled fucking brat to someone actually has to take on some responsibility and start to understand he was being a kind of a entitled dick in, in that series. So it sounds like they... They kind of realized that that series didn't work out too well, and they took the story and changed it a little bit, tweaked it a little bit, and kind of redeemed the character to a certain degree. But still, at the same time, Luke Cage, Jessica Jones, Daredevil, those are the ones you come to see. You come to see Rosario Dawson. It's pretty good. It's it's only an eight-episode series. Uh, Sigourney Weaver's fucking amazing in it as the uh, villain. Totally new, made-up villain for it. It ends the overlapping hand uh, storyline that's been going through the entire uh, all the series that mm-hmm. shadowy group of ninja whatever's it's it's kind of standard stuff you know there's it's nothing too exceptionally uh, 
surprising or anything in the show, but it's fun. All the characters play off each other really well. And I mean, everybody gets to go, yeah, when they see Luke Cage beat up the Iron Fist a little bit, just <laughs> because everyone hates the poor <laughs> Iron Fist so much. And it, it just made me remember how much I love Jessica Jones and Luke yeah. Cage. And they actually do something interesting with Elektra in this, where she was just kind of a non-entity in the second series of Daredevil. And they actually make her character more interesting in this and change some things up. And yeah, I liked it. All overall thumbs up. Pretty good series and it's an easy fucking binge. You can do it in one day. That's what I did. Yeah. So Awesome. Yeah. I never really caught up with Iron Fist. I never caught up with Daredevil, honestly. Like I started mm-hmm. the first season of Daredevil and just sort of like I know that once uh Visited Afio shows up, it's a much better series. Yeah. Uh, but I didn't get that far. I think I did like an episode and a half and just sort of like, uh, fell asleep that night. <laughs> but I love Jessica Jones and I really liked Luke Cage. But it it sounds like going to eight episodes is a positive thing because they, you know, was both good. Jessica Jones and Luke Cage feel a little bit uh, flabby in terms. They of stretched out, be, you know? yeah, because you yeah. you sort of you sort of ended Luke Cage almost halfway through the series, where the really main bad villain ends up getting killed, and then they introduce a totally new one, which is like eh, it doesn't quite work. Right, and then then at the then, then they basically just kind of have this like big fight sequence at the end between the two, which was only ever going to end one way. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. like like the, the Diamondback was in no way compelling. No way is as compelling as the just ordinary gangsters that that yep. Cage. I mean, the whole point of like that first. Um, I, I think I mean I've seen some people kind of. I mean, misinterpret. It's hard to say, but like. I've seen some people, I think, misinterpret Luke Cage in the sense that that's a show that's about somebody who can basically beat anybody up, but then mm-hmm. gets put into situations where he can't do it because of, you know, political reasons or because of, you know, you know, that, that it sort of explores the limits of how much can you accomplish just by punching people. Right. And I think that that's a really, really powerful idea, particularly explored within that world. I, I mean, I loved the like the gangster shit and that the, mm-hmm. the, the, the really like the, the scheming and the wheeling and dealing and the almost Scorsese movie kind of, kind of elements to, to yeah, big the, the, of the, the, the cotton mall stuff was good because that was a three dimensional villain. Like right. he had depth, right? He had a backstory, he had depth. He was interesting. He had the fucking Delphonics play in his club. I mean, what yeah. the more do you fucking want? What, what else do you need in your life? Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to catch up with all of them at some point, but, uh, yeah, no, I've been I've been seeing a lot of commentary about the defenders on my uh, Twitter feed, and it seems to be a little fairly mixed, but better than the the, the discussion of Iron Fist was. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I don't know. Anything? Oh, did you hear that? Like they're bringing Kilgrave back into Jessica that's, Jones. That's what I heard, and uh, I'm all for it, even if it's just post traumatic stress things. I hope, even it, though... I hope it's like just flashbacks. I hope they don't yeah. like try to pretend like, and then Kilgrave survives somehow. Like that's the. I, I feel like that story is over, though. Like, I feel like okay. I feel like if we're gonna bring it back, it needs to be either flashbacks or it needs to be a, a ghostly memory or something. It can't be like he can't be the big bad again because we've done that story already. Yeah, and did it like to perfection. <laughs> you know? Yeah, because like when when you when you meet up with the defenders, they're all kind of basically just suffering from. They're they're trying to get on with their lives after the events of their respective series, and I mean Jessica Jones is arguably the most damaged out of all of them after after the uh, events of her series. And she's the one who actually struggles the most becoming part of the team and, like, right. starting to work with people because she's just totally 
reserved and walled off from everybody at that point when the series starts. So there, there's actually some really good character stuff in that series, and I really enjoyed it. I, I would place it, you know, like second after Jessica Jones, and then like Luke Cage at third, sure. and you know, and Daredevil's probably tied with Luke Cage for me. So sure, yeah, no, I get that. All right, there's the superhero talk. It's over with. Mike Murphy, yeah. welcome back to the podcast. You need, you need to put a time code just for Mike Murphy. And, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Mike Murphy, stop listening between 1723 and 2208 or whatever. You know. <laughs> I got one more um, chat there, uh, something that I uh, – it turns out that when you go to Amazon and you look for From Beyond – and then rent mm-hmm. it for $3 because I didn't want to have to bother finding it elsewhere. You also find other films that have the words from beyond in them. Yeah. And so I also watched Slave Girls from Beyond Infinity. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, which was um, an adaptation in the loosest possible sense of The Most Dangerous Game. It felt a lot like a uh, 60s or 70s Doctor Who serial uh, with, mm-hmm. with soft court porn which is great. It was very stupid and somewhat fun. It comes with the full moon subscription if you have that. So Right, right. What's checking be, out? Yeah, people don't realize how much stuff full moon actually kind of has the rights to because right. before full moon, Charles Band had Empire Pictures and also like I think it was Charles Band Empire or something before that even. So they're just their production and dis- distribution history basically stems all the way from I think the late 70s right into the 90s and the 2000s. So they, they've covered a lot of the sort of exploitation and horror and stuff like that that you've seen. Uh, if you look, look up Empire Pictures on uh, uh, Internet Movie Database, the list of stuff that they've done is pretty goddamn long, and there's a lot of notable like good stuff in there. There's a lot of schlock and shit, too. But, yeah, they, 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 they do do a lot of stuff, so... It, it, it's cool to see that they have that online service there. I'm, I'm sure that's probably making them a pretty uh, good coin at this point. Yeah. I mean, for six bucks a month, it's really, I mean, if you're a fan of this podcast, it's probably a, a reasonable expense for you. You know, I kind of dip in and out of it. Like if I see something like we're seeing, I'll buy it for another month and then, you know, just kind of let it go for a while. And then, right. you know. uh, but yeah, no, it was definitely um, sort of, sort of worth checking that out. If you've, if you've got it. <laughs> Um, they also have uh, another one, Beach Babes from Beyond. Oh, Beach Babes from Beyond is fun. I put that on for a few minutes just before like cleaning up and getting ready to, to uh, do this podcast, and I uh, realized that I saw it in the 90s. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and, of course, this has uh, Sarah Bellamo and uh, Leanna right. Quigley in it, both uh, people that we've discussed Quite, uh, yeah. quite uh, simple to tell before. It's um, got, uh, it's got uh, Nikki Fritz in it as well. Very prominent softcore actors from that era, and that's probably one we will visit when we get back to Sex oh, Comedy nice. at some point. Yeah, because... so definitely, definitely worth it. Um, I remember that one because I think it got covered on like an E Entertainment thing like back in the day, because they, as a marketing gimmick, they had hired all of the f- relatives of famous actors at that point. Right, like. Joe Estevez and uh, Frank know, Stallone, Frank Stallone, and you know, like a, a whole bunch of. So basically, they could do a poster which had Estevez, Swayze, yeah, yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Which is which is and so literally, you just have scenes of two actors sitting in the in the front seat of a car having meaningless conversation, just so you could say they're both in the in the film. Which uh, that it was that era of the direct to video. Oh yeah, age, it, you know. 
it's very much in the same vein as uh, Bikini Drive-In, which has basically had all these luminaries of B-movies from the past, like, in there. And then lots of tits. You know, it's just, that's the big draw, right? Yeah, that, that's, that's what it's there for. All right. Well, we can move on now and uh, get into our movie. Doesn't look like Paul's going to show up. He probably he's doing father daughter stuff this weekend. So uh, if if he got distracted, then that's uh, more than understandable. So uh, he probably flipped the switch on a resonator and is could, uh, dealing dealing with the third eye coming uh, out of well, his forehead. You know? Well, if something stimulating is a pineal gland, and if some of the theories surrounding it are correct, he's probably having some interesting sex right now, so best not to disturb Mmm, yeah. <laughs> great coffee. Mmm. Hey. Hmm? Chad, who's that strange, somber man on the cover of that book you're reading? Oh, that's H.P. Lovecraft. Oh, I've heard of him, but I never really got into his stuff. It's kind of strange and hard to read. No, I used to think that, too. But that all changed when I started listening to the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. What's that? The H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast is a weekly podcast. Tell me more. Well, these two really smart and hilarious guys give a synopsis of the story, then they talk about its background, the critical views, and what it says about the author. Well, where can I listen? Well, let me tell you, Chris, you can go to hppodcraft.com or, heck, just subscribe through iTunes. It's that easy. Oh, Chad, I'm so excited. Now I can listen to this podcast and pretend to all my snooty friends that I actually read and understand H.P. Lovecraft. Hey, that's what I do. HPPodcraft.com <laughs> 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 Hello and welcome to Hello, This is the Doom Show. I'm Richard. And I hate the burning. Shh, who are you? Speak. <laughs> and I'm Brad. She came in and said, bark, bark, bark. <laughs> and he said, bark, bark, bark. And she said, bark, 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 bark. That's what I got. One is the Suspiria boner, the other is the Inferno boner. <laughs> which, anyway. Which one is crying? <laughs> The boner of tears. <laughs> Hello, this is the Doomed Show. Is available on Hello Doomed Show. Podomatic. Com and Doomed Movie Thon. Com. Hello, hello. This is the Doomed Show. Richard, Brad, Jeffrey, Nava. Yeah, we're going to be looking at From Beyond from 1986. Every journey begins in the mind. <laughs> a flight of imagination. A vision of what might lie across the universe. Or within the deepest regions of the subconscious. <laughs> Dr. Edward Pretorius is about to embark on such a journey. <laughs> it's out of control. You've got to turn it off. Something's coming. <laughs> Humans are such easy prey. From the makers of Reanimator, from beyond. Directed by Stuart Gordon. Written by Brian Usna, Dennis Palali, 
Stuart Gordon. And this, is, of course, is adapted from the short story by H.P. Lovecraft. It's starring Jeffrey Combs as Crawford Tillinghast, or Tillinghast, actually. Barbara Crampton as Dr. Catherine McMichaels. Ted Sorrell as Dr. Edward Pretorius. Ken Faree as Bubba Brown Lee. Carolyn Purdy Gordon as Dr. Block. Bunny Summers as Neighbor Lady. And Bruce McGuire <laughs> as Jordan Fields. <laughs> and, and I think that's actually every single person that, af- that appears in the film. To, to be fair, like pretty, yeah, there's there's other other than some assorted victims at the hospital. Yeah, that's about, right? So I'll read the very first synopsis from IMDb here, and this is from Claudio Carvalho from Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. All right, so let's see what you have to give us here, Claudio, because I haven't read these yet, so this might be really bad. Doctor Edward Pretorius and his assistant, the physician Crawford Tillingas, have developed. I didn't know he was a physician so much. I don't think they specified that. Have developed a resonator, a machine to stimulate the sixth sense through the pineal gland. I want to keep saying penis gland. Uh, It's pretty much that, though. Uh, When Crawford activates the apparatus, he sees creatures flying in the air, and he summons Dr. Pretorius. The experiment goes out of control, and Dr. Pretorius refuses to turn off the resonator. Meanwhile, their neighbor calls the police, and when the police officers arrive, they see Crawford trying to escape from his house and Dr. Pretorius beheaded. Crawford is sent to a mental institution under the supervision of the sadistic Dr. Block. I wouldn't say she's sadistic. She's just kind of a bitch. However, the prominent psychiatrist, Dr. Catherine McMichaels, requests the custody of Crawford, and Detective Bubba Brown Lee, that is investigating the case, stays with them. Catherine goes with Crawford and Bubba to see the resonator and turns the machine on. The Dr. Pretorius returns in a muted shape and attacks them in the beginning of a gore night. Okay, a gore night with weird life forms. Probably some translation things there from uh, English to from Portuguese. Yeah, Portuguese, but pretty accurate, I'd say. Pretty, yeah, pretty, pretty, much pretty yeah, like. But yeah, this is, this is based on H.P. Uh, Lovecraft's short story. Probably one of his shortest stories ever, actually. It's only like seven pages long. Um, I read that line, and it was just like like two scrolls. Like, that's mm-hmm. all. You know? Like, it's, it's very, very short. Yeah, so uh, you actually did some prep work for this and read the short story before you watched the film. So, uh, first off, what did you think of the short story? I'll preface this by saying I have uh, lots of sort of cultural knowledge of H.P. Lovecraft, but very little, like, direct experience. I have not read mm-hmm. basically any Lovecraft. And yet, so many of the things that I have read have been so influenced by him, and I know a lot of people who have, um, like yourself, who have, you know, kind of a detailed knowledge. And, you know, so I end up in conversations about Lovecraft despite not knowing anything about H.P. Lovecraft, (laughs) which this is the internet. That's what we do, is we opine at length and with great vociferousness about things we have no knowledge of. So not something I try to do publicly, um, so I just want to admit my, my kind of general ignorance at this point. I'm thinking I get from the short story, and uh, you know, I read it once just to kind of have read it before you know getting into the movie. I actually watched the first couple minutes of the movie and went, "Let me see if the short story is online. How much of this is you know actually in the <laughs> in the story?" Um, I, I enjoyed the story. I, I think it's you know, Lovecraft is a writer. I mean, he's writing during the modern during the modernist period. He's he's uh, writing. He's kind of earlier than uh, sort of the golden age of science fiction by a couple right. of years. So, but but he's uh, he's writing in that in that sort of the pulp tradition, along with like Robert E. Howard and and uh, mm-hmm. one of those other guys. And he was uh, clearly desperately afraid of relativism and modernism. You know, he, right. he's clearly a reactionary and uh, plays in um, 
you know, the kind of general racism, which isn't really in this story, at least not in an overt way. Yeah, but um, it's pretty obviously, let's be terrified of uh, this whole like relativity thing and this whole idea that reality is somewhat unknowable. And uh, that just connects us right back to, you know, these. it's going to destroy our civilization, our, our wonderful, you know, Western European and American civilization. It's going to destroy yeah. that if we, if we embrace these, this kind of knowledge. It's very effective at that. I mean, you know, it's, it's amazing how brilliant he is at portraying this uh, just kind of generalized horror and in so few words, this whole idea that like, if we can look beyond what we, it's just going to annihilate all of us. Yeah. Like it's just going to yeah. annihilate everything that we hold dear. You know, for me, it's like, yes, because the things you hold dear are actually terrifying and awful. <laughs> and like the real world isn't like that. But it, it's kind of fascinating, uh, you know, certainly in 2017 to kind of look at that and go, like, this guy was absolutely terrified about the idea that, like, you know, length and distance may not be um, universal truths compared to right. realistic speeds. Like, he knew enough. I mean, he's using, like, non-Euclidean geometry and he's, you know, describing them in that way. He's just terrified of that stuff. And it's fascinating. I mean, it's legitimately just on a uh, like how his brain worked kind of level um and so much of that is in there i mean again the racial stuff isn't in there but then that connects into he had these really weird beliefs about, i mean not i don't want to say weird but he had he had beliefs about like well when we get to the film we'll talk about the the use of sexuality well, i think I, is, is, yeah is, is, I, I i will say like a lot of that is a lot of that is overtly racialized at least in terms of the like the literature of the period it's not in this film but it well, is um, i mean people do make excuses for his racism and uh, the predominant scholar of Lovecraft, Joshi, his, his last name is, he kind of denies it to, to a kind of an alarming degree, which right. really sucks, which, because he, otherwise he's brilliant on Lovecraft. Lovecraft was even a bit more racist for his time than his contemporaries to a certain degree, because he was still kind of latching on to ideas of like social Darwinism that were actually pretty much in dispute and were kind of being kind of run out of the popular kind of scientific discussions at that point. Yeah. Even, even in, um, I mean, the, the story was written in 1920. Yeah. And so by that point, they, I mean, the modern synthesis is around that time. And so even like the ideas of like, uh, evolution as we, as we now mm-hmm. understand it would have been, um, Something that were they were still kind of being hammered out at this point. Right. Um, at least at the time the story was written, it was published years later. He just comes out of that particular moment. I mean, I don't. It's always difficult whenever you look at somebody and say, "Well, you know, for his time, mm-hmm. he wasn't he wasn't that bad," you know, because like <laughs> there have always been people who are not racist against black people in these societies. You know why? Yeah. Because there are black people in these societies. You yeah. know, who were the victims of this, and uh, so so it is kind of giving him a pass because he's a white guy. He's brilliant, but he's brilliant in some ways because of his reactionary nature. You know, yeah. he, the thing that we find horrifying about his stories is that he's identifying this thing and then expressing it in this through this sort of abstract language. And yet it comes directly out of this like visceral, like fear of the unknown and this fear of the things he finds disgusting and, and this kind of fear of mm-hmm. his civilization being ripped away. And I think he's, he's all the more powerful because of it. Like you can't, differentiate Lovecraft from the uh, racist attitudes and the racist society that, that built him, you know, in some way. Yeah. Like he thinks this is really important. Like <laughs> he thinks it's really important to say like, yes, these kinds of ideas are dangerous and these kinds of people are disgusting and et cetera, et cetera. And to deny him that is to deny who he was. 
like to a right. certain. I mean, you know. So anyway, that that's kind of my my, my take on the story anyway. Um, mm-hmm. but I enjoyed the story. I mean, it, it's sort of um, you know, I did not read it in depth. I read it with a, with a sort of general like I just need to kind of read it and kind of know what's going on. So I did not do a a detail, but I love the way that it just kind of ends with basically what happens is he sees the monsters. He can't move, but he sees the monsters and you know, Pretorius or not the the unnamed. Um, I guess the unnamed narrator, and then uh, Kildegraster. Well, Kildegrast is the um, yeah yeah Til- is the like mad scientist. Yeah. So in a way, they kind of flip flip the roles a bit they in do, the, yeah. the film. You know, um, but uh, yeah, no. So the unnamed narrator kind of sits there, and then he has this experience, and Tildegrast is a little like because we can see these things. All of the material world is meaningless. Mm-hmm. It's all you know, and um, it is. It is like what you're reaching just a little bit there, man. Like you're reaching just <laughs> just a bit, you know. Um, but it, but it's so aptly expressed in terms of the horror. I mean, it is. It is. You know, there are people today and, and yesterday who, when confronted with the unknowable, thought it meant that everything that could possibly that my my existence is meaningless if atoms exist, Mm-mm. you know, Lovecraft expresses that perfectly. You know, it's, yep. it's it, and I think that's what makes him powerful, you know, because so many of us have that, have that feeling that this far and no further, any further than this confronting this void is too much right. for, for any of us, you know, it'll just destroy us. You know? So uh, moving on to the film, what, what are your sort of initial sort of general thoughts on how it, how it, how it works and how it adapts the uh, story? I mean, it basically uh, starts at the end of the story in a way. It's sort right. of, uh, you know, the story kind of ends with uh, an acquittal or a sort of like the, the police d- determine that uh, the, narr- the narrator is not responsible for the death of the scientist because the scientist, um, you know, he had a, a cardiac arrest or whatever. Um, and so yeah. they just said, you know, and then, uh, you know, you just, you, you had to go off on your own thing. The story or the movie kind of like reversed it and said he's still in prison or he's still or he's not he's in the mental hospital he's being you know he's, he's been he's being investigated and then brings in sort of the the psychiatrist and the scientist to sort of um determine what's going on i really love that aspect of it i love the fact that it just because the the story is kind of a premise more so than it mm-hmm. is like really a narrative and so it kind of gives us this narrative on top of that it basically works on its own terms i think that you know it's it's going after different fish i mean if if love if the lovecraft is about sort of the uh confronted the unknowable there's a little bit of that in the film but it really just kind of becomes about this sort of antagonistic relationship that uh these guys have against uh, pretorius at right. a certain point it really just becomes about pretorius is a big bad guy who's just like taken on superhuman powers and then so it loses some of that um central metaphor but i think in a way that's that's uh that works within the context of the film i mean it just sort of becomes less thematically interesting although they have this uh I know I, they have this sexual theme that's completely mm-hmm. missing from the original, which points right back to the the fears that would have been present in the original Lovecraft material. Right. So there is this kind of weird like disconnect there. Like it, that material will work better in the original story than it works in the film at large. Except they just do. I don't know. Like I well, I guess we'll have to talk about that uh, a little bit later. But yeah. overall, I like the film. I'm not bored during the film. I really like the effects. I like the look of the film. I really love seeing. Uh, what's his name? The dude from uh, Dawn of the Dead, um, oh, looking uh, like uh, yeah, Kim Simpson in, in this in this role, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, he was a football player before he became an actor. So. Yeah, no, no, I mean, um, no, I was just uh, uh, one of the other things. I've, I watched a bunch of documentaries recently, mm-hmm. and I watched this documentary about OJ Simpson, and I'm just sitting there going, like, oh, this is made in '86. This is 
Yeah, this is very much like like O.J. Simpson would have been too expensive to get for this role at this point. Right. right? That's essentially but that's essentially the dude he's playing. He's playing like the all American former football star uh who uh, then goes into like private security or whatever. It's uh, <laughs> um and I just love that his name is Bubba and he has yeah. Probably my favorite moment in the film as well, if you'd like me to. Like the funniest thing that happens in the film for me is um, when he's hungry. And when he's, he's cooking. When he's cooking, he yeah. Cooks, he makes chicken and dumplings. And first of all, I'm like, of <laughs> course, the black man is making chicken and dumplings. But I, it's such a great little character moment. I completely forgive it, you know? Um, <laughs> so he's making chicken and dumplings. And then you see him like bring the pot over to the plates. And he puts like one on one plate. One on the second plate, and then the other three are on the yeah his plate. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I I, I love this character because yeah. first it does play a little bit to his previous character in Dawn of the Dead as Peter, yeah. where he is actually the most sensible kind of rational guy in the entire movie. Like he, mm-hmm. he he's got a good head on his shoulders. He's got to deal with all these crazy fucking white people, and of course he also has the the sort of comedic stereotypical kind of here's the black character in a holly in, in a horror movie kind yeah. of trope too is like he's basically the first major character to die as well you know like yeah. oh he black. dies way early in this film he dies mm-hmm. way earlier than than everybody else which is yeah. i mean and needlessly i mean completely you know he gets he gets sworn by the same fucking locusts that were killing every, that were attacking everybody else, but they start attacking him because what a flashlight shined on him. Like yeah. I don't know what the uh, you know it, it seems like there was some uh, some some logic fails in that. Like I didn't get what the the film was trying to suggest there. But yeah, it's a little weird. But yeah, no, they they he literally like he has the the flashlight in his hand and he's like this is the last you know he's already tried a gun he's already tried an axe and then he's got I got a flashlight so I'm just gonna shine it on them. And then, like, he just throws the flashlight aside, and then the locusts kill him. And I, okay, well, whatever. whatever. Yeah. There, there's, some, there's something going on, like, the, the filmmakers thought. I'd love to see what that direction was in the script, you know? <laughs> like, it, what they I, said was happening. Well, I, I know what the direction was. The direction was, was we have to get to this really awesome shot of him right. being up and, and having his prosthetics and him dying of shock as he, you know. It's it's really just a delivery system for the effect, and it's a great effect. It's an amazing, I mean, the effects are really, really, I mean, you know, for the most part really amazing. For... Some of it's pretty obviously blue screen, and, and mm-hmm. kind of like not even that, that good for 86 blue screen, but um, for the most part, particularly the, the prosthetics are, are phenomenal. Yeah, um, yeah. In fact, compare um, favorably at least equal to uh, a film we discussed a little while ago, Slither, um, it reminded yep. me a lot of that. I mean, clearly Slither is inspired by this sort of idea of how to do um, monster effects. So no, no points for me there for referencing the 20 years later, somebody else would use these <laughs> ideas. Um, yeah. You know, um, it, it made me think favorite. I mean, it, it made me think fondly of Slither in, in, in a lot of ways um, in terms of the, the quality of the effects. And obviously um, in 86, that's a, an even greater achievement than it was in, in for, for James Gunn. Right. I really love how this movie kind of just takes the original story and runs with it because, I mean, you've got seven pages. You don't have a lot to work with there. Like you said, it's very much just a premise for a story. It's not really a story. So they build on it here. They give Well, you in a lesser inter- film, I mean, not, a lesser film would have tried to take those seven pages and then, like, spread them out over the course of the whole thing, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, you would have long shots of 
the the guy walking up to the to the to the house, and then like yeah, he goes yeah. in, and then like long shots of him having a conversation with the clearly emaciated old man, and you know, it would have like which is a, a perfectly fine way, of, like if you can construct that properly, but then it's so much sort of less dramatically interesting. There's not really a driving momentum in that. I mean, you know, I, that's all about mood and tone at that point. And I'm as, as someone who's kind of like indifferent to, to the pleasures of horror in so many ways, that's not something I don't want to sit through 90 minutes of that. You that's, know? that's what I was about to say. You, you can't stretch that to 90 minutes. Like it's, it's, I, I think it's actually kind of impossible for you to stretch that to 90 minutes and make it interesting. I could see them doing it as a TV episode of a horror anthology series. Yeah, sure. Yeah, you could probably pull that off. But <laughs> one of the Hammer Horror, like one of the like twenty minute segments in a, in a Hammer Horror film or something, or the uh, oh, Amicus well, Horror. Excuse me, Amicus well, Horror. Well, yeah, that too. That that too. Uh, showed it to James Murphy. He said he's a dead podcast. You should listen to it because I'm on it. <laughs> uh, and actually, Hammer had their own uh, TV series for a while there, anthology horror TV series before their company totally went out to fucking pasture. But yeah, the <laughs> I, I I like how they just sort of build on the central idea of the story they give you some interesting characters they throw it to the mix and then they give you the excuse for this really massively slimy effects laden geek show with all the creatures and stuff because lovecraft contrary to popular belief everyone just thinks okay cthulhu and tentacles and really that's not a lot of what lovecraft did when he was talking about his monsters and his gods and entities and his stories like Usually he didn't describe them at all. He just went to the uh, usual too inexplicable for me to describe. If I, if we had actually seen these creatures, we would have all gone insane, and that's it, right? But people seem to think that he's responsible for the uh, slimy tentacle stuff, which he really isn't. It's it's more of the people who picked up the stories afterwards and ran with them. Um, well, he's 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 terrified of like the un- I mean, it's all about the unknown for Lovecraft. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's he's literally terrified of geometry. I mean, he uses like non-Euclidean as like a this, this terrifying idea that the, that the shapes are non-Euclidean. You know? Oh, I mean, he's he's got he's got monsters in some of his stories called I believe it's Night Gaunts, and they're these extra-dimensional creatures that. The, they hunt you down once, like, there's the very gothic idea in his stories as well, where the, re, the the searcher for knowledge looks in the wrong place and discovers too much knowledge, and they're cursed mm. by that fact, because it's going to lead to their death. And the night gaunts, I, if I'm thinking of the right creature, are one of the results of that, where if you do a certain thing, they become aware of you, and they come after you, and their gimmick is that they come out of certain corners in our geometry and our dimension. They can come out of those and find you. So <laughs> you have to like find yourself at a spot where you don't have that sort of geometry around you and uh, to be totally safe, which is, which is kind of fun. Uh, I, I, I like that. He's so scared of the ideas that there's alternate realities that just have no respect for, our reality at all and, and, and what we perceive and, and know as geometry and reality. And yeah, it obviously frightens the fuck out of Lovecraft. Those I mean, it, what you're saying is HP Lovecraft really just needed a safe space. He did. He needed a safe space, but he had, he had a literal safe space, a Euclidean space. That's what he needed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah. Um, and of course this story speaks to that stuff because, the movie ad- adaptation, because Lovecraft doesn't describe this stuff, it allows the movie makers to just come up 
whatever the fuck they want to come up with. And then and you get the... some really cool shit, honestly. Oh, yeah. Like the, the, the actual, the, just the cover art, like the box art for this. Mm-hmm. I, I saw in my just kind of like general five minutes of Googling, I found uh, like an appreciation, like a review, like a horror film, like some some no name like us talking about this film <laughs> online. I was going to, I was going to be like really dismissive. Some no name blogger, but it's like, yeah, we get 50 listens on this. Yeah. So like, you know, it's some, some, some guy who literally like went on for like two paragraphs just about the box art. You know, it does come out of that rental era that, that sort of the blockbuster movie gallery kind of era where, you know, you'd see it on the shelf. And I, I mean, I can, I mean, I probably saw this at some point. Like, I mean, I'm sure that I saw at least the, uh, you know, bits and pieces of it on, on Showtime or HBO or whatever, um, kind of growing up. And um, I'm sure I saw the box art here and there, but it made no like impression on me as a, as a thing, you know, um, I just didn't, I didn't grow up with it, but uh, the effects are amazing. And it's clear that like at a certain point, they basically just went to the effects team or there were like four effects teams that worked on this. Right. right. Okay. So basically they just sort of approached the effects team and said, it makes something that looks disgusting and amazing at the same time. And, we'll put it on camera. Like it feels very much like just let the effects people play. Yeah. Yeah. They shot the majority of this in uh, Italy. It, it was shot in uh, empire studios in, in Rome. And I think there's a note somewhere I read where they kind of think it actually costs more to ship some of their special effects over to Italy than it was to film in Italy. So, uh, and I mean, these special effects are great. I mean, the, Pator- the different forms Pretorius takes when he comes back. And sort of the idea is that Pretorius had his head eaten and twisted off by this creature from beyond. And he essentially becomes kind of part of a gestalt, kind of in- integrated with this creature, where his personality is now in the creature, is, is what I got from it. I don't know if, if that if that's what you got. Yeah, from no, it. I, I kind of get that too. And and then uh, after Tildegrass is killed, don't we sort of get the, the impression that Maybe he is also kind of joined with the creature that's, as well. That's right, because yeah. you have, like, in the final conflict between the two, he manifests himself inside that creature and tries to rip himself out, and when he rips himself out, he's totally normal again. He's not not hairless, because there's a scene where this giant fucking uh, lamprey eel thing in the basement, like, eats eats half of him and sucks yeah. all the hair off his body. But yeah, it becomes it, powder for a while. Yeah, pretty much powder with uh Pino uh I, I keep saying penile. <laughs> it's yeah. It's powder with a with a forehead cock, basically. Yeah, with a forehead cock, yeah. But yeah, he he, he kind of mess manifests himself back out with hair and everything on him. So it, it's this idea of personality is absorbed and matter is no longer an issue. Like, they can manifest themselves any way they choose. So Pretorius, who is this sexual sadist, who is, right. we, we discover by the end of the film, which is something I kind of wish they would have drawn out in the narrative a little bit more, that he was impotent, and that's why he was a sexual sadist. Which um, is exactly how that works, of course. Yeah, of course. <laughs> uh, and I, I knew you'd have something to say we're, about that. Uh, we're, we're, I mean, I guess we're going to have to talk about that at some point. So, yeah. But please complete your thought. And, and I mean, you know, yeah. I don't know. But I it's, mean, it's so silly, it's kind of hard to even talk about. But it's interesting <laughs> regardless. So, yeah. But, but yeah. But, but, but the idea, of course, behind it is that he's finally found this form where his desires can be and his sexual sadism can be expressed in a way that fulfills him to whatever 
fucking degree, right? Where he can manifest himself, where he can take poor Barbara Crampton in his embrace and elongate his fingers and then go down and start to finger her. Right. <laughs> Which, <laughs> yeah, I, I can see why this film was cut a lot by the... Uh... <laughs> yeah, the so the version that I watched, the version that's on full moon seems to be, it's the 85-minute version. So that mm-hmm. seems to be the the full like the full cut, um, at least from my reading on Wikipedia. I think it is, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like the eighty. There's an eighty minute version that it seems like was right. the only one available for a long time. Which my guess is it cut some of the more explicitly BDSM stuff. I, I um, know, like, I know exactly what the cuts were. Uh, I can sure, go ahead. Tell us. tell me because I didn't go into that much detail reading about yeah, it. Yeah. Uh, so there was, of course. So Pretorius was into BDSM. He had his whole sex dungeon thing in his bedroom or whatever, right? And you get to see parts of that. But in the original film, and I do remember this by the way because this is a film I have watched since I was a teenager. Rented it with friends. It was like a constant re-rental watch kind of thing. The scenes of him on the videotape. He's doing the doing the bondage thing. Yeah, yeah, doing I mean, the thing. Like not fucking her because he he apparently well, couldn't. He, yeah, he but, was playing with a whip and yeah. Yeah, he was doing the bondage stuff. So that wasn't in it. Uh, there was another scene. So how shot. much of that was cut out? Like, what, did they show the, the all the video like, dungeon? Like, like they they showed the dungeon, but the video that you see because oh. Fourie is standing in front of the TV at first, and you just kind of hear the, and then he yeah. kind of steps away, and then you see like you know, the thing, and then it cuts to later, like, after we see her face. I, sorry, I see the scene just to see, because I knew they'd, they'd cut around some of this, so I'm just trying to, like, so they still have the conversation, but they just cut the, like, yeah. the close-ups to the video, basically? Okay. Yeah, pretty much. There was another scene that was longer that was just totally exercised from the entire film and got lost to history. Like, it just destroyed and gone because um when they recreated this film they only had so many like trimmings to recreate it with there was still stuff that was just totally lost and we'll get more into that in a little bit so the scene where Pretorius comes back and he elongates his, his fingers and he captures barbara crampton's character and then goes down that's cut before he does that. So you sure. don't get the implication that he's fingering her, right? Also, the one big scene that's really cut from this is the eyeball sucking scene where uh in the, in the hospital yeah where 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 tillinghast is become you know basically a he's eating the brains he's eating the brains from the bucket yes. and then uh, like he he sucks the the uh the nurse's eyeball the block nurse uh dr block's eyeball yeah. that, and, you get that's the cut the, and i mean i i look at that and i think like that's really tame compared to so much of the other stuff in the film. That that because is the it's all implication, right? You know? Yeah, and, like, and that's that's the big scene that they wagged their finger at Stuart Gordon for. That's the one they hated the most. That's the one they fought him with. I, I mean it, it is it is like I <laughs> okay I'm gonna go here. It's almost as if the censors are afraid of what's unseen more than what's seen. It's yeah. almost as if people with censorious and reactionary personalities are afraid of the implication because they're afraid of what's going on in their own fucking minds. Yeah. Almost. <laughs> Go it's figure. almost like that. I can't almost. imagine. I can't imagine how that works. Yeah. <laughs> for for the, the meta commentary has become the commentary on this film. Yes. Yeah, really. 
But yeah. I was actually really impressed by that sequence because at that point, Powder has uh, has gained <laughs> spooky vision, the the mm-hmm. pineal gland. I mean, like it's a it's a silly effect, but it's I, I get it. Like you you're working on it's nineteen eighties video effects. It's nineteen eighty six video effects. It's fine. Yeah. This looks way more impressive in eighty six than it looks today. I'm I'm, <laughs> yeah. like, I'm okay with accepting that. It's fine. But like, <laughs> there's one bucket. In fact, the idea that even they went to the effort of like making one bucket full on green. Yeah, to like indicate this is the one he's going for, and then later he's sitting by that same bucket, is more effort than I thought they would put into that. That's yeah. uh, that's pretty impressive, uh, because normally they just put the little sheen on it, and then just it doesn't mean anything. It's just oh look, he's viewing through this other world. Um, but you see, he's escaped. Ordinarily, there'd be like a chase sequence at this point, right? right? Or there'd be like a search sequence, you, and then like he'd kill some guards or whatever. I mean, you don't get that. He's literally two doors away, you know, and he's like, there's blood going into the door and there's like this dread. We as an audience don't know what we're going to get when she opens the door. And we don't like her as a character because she's torturing the like one person in this film that we're supposed to like, you know, she's, she's by the book and she endorses shock therapy. So that's why she's, but she's not even by the book because she's like, you know, the other, the, the, uh, the nurses. Well, yeah, but the protocols say like, fuck the protocols. Oh yeah, that too. Yeah. yeah. So, so I, I think it's fair. I mean, I, I think if I were, uh, Wanting to have a, a more detailed conversation, I think there is a parallel between Pretorius's sadism, sexual sadism that he's and uh, Block. I think there is a there is a connection that the film is. It's got it's got a lot of ideas, and it's not really executing them properly, right? Which is a problem, but it's it's definitely trying to connect the sadism well, between Block and, and Pretorius in yeah, that scene. And it also touches on repression as well. I mean, yeah. it does sort of play with Tillinghast's meekness and repression and Dr. McMichael's repression and the idea that the resonator essentially enhances their deepest, darkest kind of... And not even necessarily their real desires. It just kind of exploits and enhances and make even makes them maybe people that are not really... They're, they're not really those people. It, it just kind of changes them. Because, I mean, yeah. it, it full-on changes Tillinghast. I mean, you got the, the penile gland coming, like, right out of his fucking head. I mean, he, he becomes a total slave to that sensory organ. I mean, that's the reason he's sucking people's brains out of their fucking eyeballs, right? Like, yeah, which which is fascinating on a on a thematic level with the, with the Lovecraft idea that mm-hmm. what makes us human is our ability to repress our, like, kind of base desires. And those base desires are fundamentally without, like, the veneer of civilization, quote-unquote, my air quotes here, you know, we would all just be sucking other people's eyeballs, you know, sort of, yeah. sort of thing. Yeah, and know? I mean, a, a lot of the theories around that gland, one of the stronger ones, scientifically, because there's, there's a lot of batshit ones as well. Um, yeah, you think? I mean, it goes yeah. back to, what, Descartes? Descartes, <laughs> who thought it was the third eye, basically. Yeah, right? yeah. But, I mean... And they literally have, like, the, the eye comes out of the... I mean, it's... Mm-hmm. It's 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 I mean it's explicitly like sort of endorsing that idea at least right. you know, visually thematically you know yeah and yeah, then, there's a lot of there's a lot of thought behind this that I feel like it sort of has the idea and then like just discards it to, yeah to it, a degree you know it it it, it kind of takes backseat to the effects right because that, right. that's that's the biggest selling point of the movie but. Uh, so the, technically, there's a more interesting movie somewhere that explores that a bit more in detail. But the idea that one of the more stronger scientific ideas around that gland is that it is a vestigial kind of thing that is just in us, you know, that doesn't really 
do anything so much anymore. So the idea is that that has repressed through evolution in the story. That's repressed through evolution to basically save us from seeing these floating creatures that are all around us that we can't perceive because they're in just a slightly shifted dimension from our reality, right? It it, it does play with the stuff pretty well. I, I think it does do a really good job of expanding on Lovecraft's premise. It it doesn't fully like like we said, it doesn't fully explore them. It doesn't it's maybe not fully satisfactory, but for what we get from a nineteen eighty six gore show with uh, BDSM sexuality uh, sort of tacked onto it <laughs> very uh, loosely. I think it works really well. If you accept it as what it is, it works quite well. You know? mm-hmm. But it, it also sort of fails to engage with any of these ideas that it seems to be like it's, it's so... Um, I feel like I would be a fan of horror if it was intellectually consistent. Like if, like mm-hmm. if it would... You know, and and uh, what I find fascinating about horror is the uh, the way that it, it explores the things that we don't want to talk about. It explores right. these, these sort of ideas, and I feel like good horror, you know, can do that. But I feel like so often the genre basically just because of production, because of budget, because of Hollywood, because of just the unwillingness to go there or you know whatever, it kind of refuses to really engage with the stuff that it's pretending to engage with. And I feel like my frustrations with the film kind of come out of very often. It feels like there's a sort of a better movie, like a really brilliant movie about to emerge from this chrysalis kind of like idea. And yet it keeps kind of coming back to this a little bit more basic idea. It it touches on it and then revulses from it almost as if it's afraid to approach the unknowable. (laughs) <laughs> like outside of our reality, like there, there is a, uh, there is a sense in which um, adaptations of Lovecraft are, uh, they're buying into the very idea of of who Lovecraft was as a as a person, as a writer, mm-hmm. as, a, as a creative artist. You know, yeah, God, that's sorry. I'm thinking out loud at this point, and uh, I'm now thinking like I maybe need to read a lot more Lovecraft and then like watch a lot more films like this to uh, like. Th- there's probably something there, honestly. Uh, yeah. You know, um, sorry, I'm I'm getting way too like I'm I'm a <laughs> I've moved I've moved, I finished my glass of whiskey and now I've moved on to beer. Uh, hopefully, you don't uh, hear it too loud in the audio, but uh, so um, I'm at this point of like the, the happy. I've had quite a bit of nice scotch yeah. in space, and uh, I think I'm being really clever right now. But uh, the audience can tell me that I'm not. It's fine. It, it, hey, it's working for me, so you know, fuck the audience. Yeah, right. what, what do they know? What do they know? They, I mean, if, they don't. They don't. They don't have a microphone and a Google Hangout chat like. like well, we no. Do. I, I was gonna say, goddamn, they come back to us every week. What the fuck did they know? Yeah. Should we talk about? Should we talk about BDSM now? And should we talk about BDSM in 1986 now? Yeah, go ahead. I really admired that the uh, leather outfit she changes into is very exactly what would be hanging in this guy's closet in 1986. Like there, mm-hmm. there's a. There's an like it feels very lived in. Like I've seen people basically in I you know regular listeners will know that like I know this world better than most people do. I you know I, I'm into this stuff. I've been to events. I've seen you know there are a lot of mid forties housewives who have that kind of outfit hanging in their closet, and it's great. You know today you can just if you have the money you can just kind of buy this stuff off the shelf. You know, mm-hmm. um, but at that point like it all had to be kind of like handmade. 
Yeah, there is a, there is a look to a lot of this stuff where it just kind of like it legitimately looks that way. His his dungeon, quote unquote, is a little bit overcrowded in the sense of like I don't know how you play on that stuff. It does it, does look like there's not a lot of room for leg work in that place, right? and and especially if he's got a whip. And I'm going to tell you, like you need space for a whip. There's no <laughs> there's there's no way around that. I mean, you know, most of us who are interested in whips don't actually own one just because. Like, where am I going to have, tw- you know, a 12-foot radius to practice? There's just, it's it's impossible, you know. Imagine in your life finding a place where you have a 12-foot radius of, like, there's nothing around you, where you can also do it privately and not neighbors watching everything you do. Like, Yeah, so, I, couldn't, I couldn't do it here. Maybe yeah. in my basement. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, basically, and that's what people do is they, they can't... Yeah. And I only use that because he's holding a whip in that moment. And you notice he's not actually using the whip. He's really just, like, holding it against her. Yeah, holding it back. And, yeah. He's holding it, and, like, that's that's kind of the way that, like, I, I get it completely. It, it is, uh, you know, like, no one in mainstream uh, film ever uses the whip properly. It's, no, it's, they're, they're, they're giving the suggestion to the normies, basically. Is what exactly, exactly, you know. Um, so I get that. The conflation of this sort of BDSM sexuality, this kind of, like, sexual sadism, with you know this approaching the unknowable my whole thing is like it connects very obviously to the lovecraft because like the idea of stepping outside of sexual norms is terrifying to people like lovecraft even today yeah and Um, for for lovecraft even more so because even just the idea of being intimate with a woman was pretty much forbidden for him so sure well uh you know i don't i don't know that i mean that's that's fascinating and that's something that uh in what way? I guess, I mean, fuck it, we're just talking, he, right? He was... Yeah, 50 he listeners. Was, like, we don't have to be entertaining to people, right? We can just sit and chat, No, no, right? no uh, it, it's very well known that Lovecraft was a very sickly person. He was mm-hmm. isolated. He lived at home for the most majority of his life, and he was raised by, uh, I believe, first his mother and then his aunt, and he was... He, he, he was not a guy who was out courting the ladies let's put it that way right and do you, and, do, you th- do you think he was do you think he was gay or do you think he was just no repressed? Uh, no he was just repressed i think i, I don't believe he was gay because he did get married for a brief time but i mean the most interesting thing about that marriage is that he married a jew which uh well, given uh, given his from what, I, from what i understand he's not really anti-semitic though uh, least, he I read his. Li- I read his. Was, I read his Wikipedia page. I read. I read his Wikipedia yeah, page. Which he, is, he was a little bit. He but, hated black people and he hated like lower races, quote unquote lower races. Yeah, like, he he, he wasn't he wasn't a fan of people he like races he wasn't familiar with that he didn't uh, mix with in Providence, Rhode Island. You know, like that kind of thing. <laughs> sure, yeah. So you know, basically all the other races because <laughs> there was very yeah. few at the time there. But, I mean, that that's like the waspiest place that ever wasped, basically. Yeah, you know? so, I mean, you can understand his repression and stuff like that, and his fear of the unknown. I mean, this he was a very sheltered guy uh, for the most majority of his life, and his marriage didn't last too long. I believe he moved to New York with her for a while, and sort of took on a very dire idea of New York. Maybe not so much as he had before, but because there, there's one story he did the horror of Red Hook that's uh, set in New York. That's incredibly racist. Like that's probably his most racist story he's ever written, but it seems like he kind of softened on that a little bit 
later in his life. You know, just to get back to the central point, yeah, he was kind of a very sexually repressed, like, vestige of Victorian values kind of guy. Sure. Well, and, and those, the reason I ask is, or the reason we, I, I kind of bring it up is uh, in that time period, in that sort of Edwardian or kind of, like, that sort of early 20th century kind of Africa is not, like, Africa is both the kind of dark, savage continent, you know? All of this mm-hmm. is in air quotes. I'm not, like, I'm not endorsing this view. Africa is the, like, dark, savage continent, but also right. had a titillation, you know? There was mm-hmm. a, uh, in Victorian England, there was a uh, attraction, again, in quotes, that they had a black woman who was called the Hottentot Venus, who sure. was a black, a woman from Africa, a black woman it was literally like put on display and she was, <laughs> she had a really big ass. <laughs> and um, the idea, like she's a Venus because the whole thing was like at that time, the corset was meant to like accentuate the bottom and like that right. was the whole, you know, that was the standard of beauty at the time. And so then having this woman who was both this ignorant savage but also was incredibly sexually enticing to people at the time. I mean, that's that's almost the portrait of this era and of Victoriana, as far as I'm concerned. That's the way they considered race. And so any concept of sexuality within this sort of repressed... Like, repressed sexuality is always about, I'm terrified of what I might do mm-hmm. were... I to not have these repressed feelings in me. And that's something that that, the powerful, like I'm okay. I like, I understand I'm sympathetic, but then um, when you attempt to repress and uh, ethnically cleanse those who uh, do act on. Yeah. Who are are okay with that. That's the big problem. You know, that's, that's, that's really, that's really where you draw the line. I understand. I'm not going to make you do anything I want to do, but like at the same time, like, uh, let's not put a bullet in gay people's heads. Like, let's not do that. (laughs) That's a bad thing. I'm gonna I'm gonna go out there on a limb and say wow what a what a bold you know, statement to make my god what a bold statement the outright murder and uh, you know anyway um yeah. so uh, and that's where this leads ultimately um mm-hmm. so so when you th- think about BDSM in this context you know and, and the way that sort of the popular I mean the conception of it it's funny like how visually it works for me like I kind of like in '86 this totally you know this feels kind of realistic. Um, in terms yeah. of, it doesn't feel over the top. In other words, it doesn't feel like it's it's been manipulated. No, it, I, um, I didn't feel that it felt reserved to me. Yeah, and, I mean, it, it feels it feels like very much it feels lived in. Again, the outfit she puts on is not, you know, it, and part of this is just a function of budget. Like they didn't have the money to spend. You know, like a ton well, of yeah, Stuart Gordon and Bar- Barbara Crampton shopped together for that outfit in Italy, I believe. Mm-hmm. So. Oh, oh! If they shot I mean, that, I totally buy that. Like this feels an off-the-shelf. We spent a hundred dollars on this kind of, mm-hmm. you know, outfit. I'm completely on board with that. And um, that's, I, I guess, I guess it's funny to me, like because so often in this kind of thing, when you see like, and then they get into BDSM because they're evil, and yeah. it's like suddenly they have like the ten thousand dollar designer design covered in like super shiny exactly exactly whereas this feels like again i've seen people in my real life wear that sort of thing drink coffee it's it's a thing like Mm -hmm. it's fine um you know we're normal people it's yes um, i mean for some people to walk around the house wear totally yeah which which uh you know if and again the film doesn't doesn't really i mean the film kind of treats uh her as like this isn't you you're wearing 
leather here, you know, like we're trying to leave this place. And um, mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, the the, the BDSM content, it, it feels very, um, I mean, it feels like it's reaching for something interesting, but I think the film doesn't quite know what it's, it's got on its hands. This is another one. Of those I, instances, I mean, even, yeah, even but I think it works. I think it works basically better than a lot of the other stuff in the film. Again, kind of connected back to Lovecraft connecting to this kind of the unknowable, <clears throat> the unknowable is going to lead us down paths that make us reject ordinary norms, right? Yeah. But the rest of the film isn't about that. The rest of the film is about this guy is the bad guy. And because yeah. he's in a BDSM, he's influencing our protagonists in terms of their sexuality, and that's bad because he just wants to like kill and hurt people as opposed to doing yeah. this healthy in a healthy way with consent, et cetera. You know? I mean, I have very limited knowledge of BDSM, but it, it felt like it was kind of slightly dismissive and it wasn't sort of, it, it didn't put a positive slant on it. It didn't explore any of the positive slants on it. Like it, it, it didn't go in that direction and it just kind of used it as a device of the Pretorius character basically. Right. And well, and I mean, well it, it, in fact, you even have lines of dialogue where it's like you just you just hurt people. You don't you don't right. give anyone. And uh, it's clear to try and connect that to the BDSM. I mean, look in '86, you know, there's not there's not a great understanding. I mean, today we we have a much better you know just as a culture understanding of this. But you know, certainly at the time, it was very easy. And and um, the early '80s, a lot of the like the look comes out of the, there, there was some vicious pornography that was produced uh, mm-hmm. in the early eighties, which you can learn about um, by listening to the, uh, to the podcast. The report. The, the report. They yeah. talk, they talk quite a bit about this. There was some really vicious stuff that was being produced that was not in keeping with what we would consider to be a healthy attitude towards it today. I understand if you're an artist around this time, if you're a filmmaker and you're a director, I understand you kind of come at it and then you use that as a kind of direct metaphor. And I like on that sense, I kind of admire him for, I, I admire the filmmakers for kind of bringing it up and using it in that way. I don't, I mean like uh, blue velvet I mean, we discussed and mm-hmm. I have much bigger problems with that because it feels like it's reaching towards something realistic and then recoiling against it in this really negative antagonistic way. Like, that one was so like it's obviously so knowledgeable about the psychology mm-hmm. that it's able to um, really get under my skin, but not in the way that I think the filmmakers intended. Whereas right. this strikes me as something where they're just playing with the images around it and not really dealing with the psychology of it at all, which yeah. is difficult and kind of problematic. But it's also let's say it's eighty six. So what the fuck am I gonna say about yeah, it? Yeah, I mean the over. The overall idea is that the machine and the machine possibly being manipulated by Pretorius in his new form is basically turning these people into things they're actually not. Like, he's manipulating them, right? So... You can kind of excuse it for that, and right. Well, but but they're also like they explicitly say like the the whole thing with the pineal gland. I mean, in the film, I mean, I don't. You know, yeah, yeah. You know, you know, the whole idea is like it stimulates the pineal gland, which makes you really horny as well. Right. Which again, just like <laughs> the idea that the unknowable makes you <laughs> like more the, sexually aware, and the, therefore the unknowable is, is terrifying. Having a boner. You know? Yeah, yeah. The unknowable <laughs> is having a boner. Like that's I mean, so. That's so just straight up reactionary bullshit, right? Like it's yeah, just yeah, 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 yeah. Um, it, 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 and again, I mean, again, I wish, I wish the film had just been that. Like, 
I, it feels like we've got two films here. So often with these films that we kind of have issues with or that are complicated. There's one film that's like we've approached the unknowable and it makes us really horny in ways we don't understand. And let's explore that. And then the other film is let's do a really cool like effects driven right. horror show. You know, I really want both of these films to exist. I really want to see <laughs> the good version of the like Lovecraftian BDSM film. But this isn't that, and so. Um, yeah, but it, you know, I think it's still a fairly it works, good it works, compromise. It works in the context of what it does, and then yeah, I, yeah. And, and I do like the film overall. I mean, it, it definitely did not. There was no point at which I face palmed at this. There's no point at which I went, "Well, this is just stupid and horrifying," and you know, this it works for me on the level in which it's intended to work, and. Um, you cool. know, I'm glad you enjoyed it. Yeah, I did. I did enjoy it quite a bit. Uh, and I mean, at the end of the day, you got Barbara Crampton in BDSM gear, and she looks she looks great in that thong. That's that's a pretty impressive thong for '86. I'm just saying, yeah. like, that's a you, you know, if you you change the camera angles a little bit, you're going to be seeing a little bit more than maybe expected. <laughs> I I I wonder how many takes some of those shots took in that thong. You know. <laughs> And uh, I mean, honestly, the only, there's one time where the effects go to shit in this film for me. It's sure. where it's where uh, Tilling Tillinghast is running down the stairs away from Pretorius, and Pretorius takes on that flying creature. You see the point of view of Crawford uh, where the creature's coming at him, and that just kind of looks bad. Like that looks really bad. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um... My my issue with that sequence was he leaves the room. He he like leaves that upstairs room, and then he goes. He feels like he, it feels like he goes down the steps like three or four times, despite like there's only like one flight of stairs. So I think it feels like there might be some uh, some some editing issues with. Uh, well, with no, the the, the, the well. stair like it, like the stairs. It goes up two or three times. Like it like it, it hits a landing and then goes up and hits a landing and goes up. The 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 issue is that. He goes down the first little bit of stairs and stops. Right. And looks back. And then he goes down the second and stops and looks back. And then goes down the third and stops and looks back. So it, it, it does slow it down. It slows the sequence down. Yeah, I don't know. I'd have to I'd have to look back at it. And that was definitely a moment where I'm like the editing feels distracting. It feels like yeah. we're we're kind of being pushed in this sort of like why is he stopping at that point if he's not doing anything, you know. But, I, mean, uh, I will say that the house is really like I, I kind of love the design. Like right. uh, this is a film where we spend like uh, probably what seventy percent of our time in this in this one mm-hmm. location, and that's always going to be a okay. We need some really nice production design just to just to kind of sell us on this as a lived space, and we need to yeah. like kind of know where we are in any given time. And I do think watching this film, I know where I am at any given time in the house, which sounds like maybe it's damning with faint praise. There are lots of modern films that don't really sell me on a physical space. No, no, that's that's important. I mean, it it does sell the dimensions of the house. You 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 definitely know where you are in the house every time you see them in it. Like you do get that impression. It's very well done, and I do kind of like that. Like the house is creepy on the outside, just because it's unpainted. Like it's it's just wood. It's just bare wood. It's not painted any color. It's just like old wood. (laughs) <laughs> it's like yeah, it's kind of it's kind of cool. Like that's that looks like a place where a haunting is going to happen or a weird science experiment's going to fucking happen and shit's going to go down. But yeah, overall for me, I mean, there's definitely a lot of stuff here that just 
Lovecraft never would have touched in his stories and never did. But I think this movie expands upon his fears really, really well. And I mean, this is just a personal favorite of mine. I mean, it, it, it gets, this is one I've watched since I was a teenager, like I said, and to see it in this form restored somewhat, you know, from what they could find. I love it even more. I mean, it gets like, as far as this sort of stuff goes, it gets the highest recommendation from me, even as a Lovecraft adaptation, even though it's not necessarily true to Lovecraft, but there you go. I, I came at this knowing nothing about it, quite honestly. I, I came at it. Um, I, I read the short story. I, you know, I've admitted my deficiencies as a Lovecraft uh, critic, um, and, and uh, I don't have the knowledge. But um, I came at it. I read the short story. I watched the film. Really enjoyed it. It, it is not again, damn with faint praise, but uh, legitimately, this is not boring. There, yeah. there's a, there's no point. I mean, a lot of the films of this of this genre, this this sort of type are basically like and now we're just kind of waiting for the effects to happen and yet here the effects are brilliant and we and like you're you're kind of mesmerized watching just the just the technical prowess of the effects all the stuff around it is also really interesting and good and i feel like it's if if i've maybe i've sounded a little bit negative on the film i don't think i have but if if i've sounded i don't think so if I've sounded a little bit, you know, critical or, or trying to kind of say it could be better in in this way, in this way, it's mm-hmm. because it's good enough that I feel like it's touching on stuff that I would love to have seen them do more with, you know. Right. And that's all. That's that's generally a good thing. Yeah. I mean, that's mm-hmm. when yeah. when it, it kind of like it, it's marching path stuff, but it's also this genre is not like it's not a thoughtful film like it's Mm -hmm. not meant to be that it's not it's meant to kind of deliver these kind of scares and uh, again i would love to see the like big prosthetics heavy version and then like let's also do the thoughtful version i want to see like parallel versions of this film basically i think this is a right for a remake yeah i would agree i i I could deal with a remake of this yeah yeah no like like going back to the source material and then dealing with like basically let's go back to the source material and then also deal with the bdsm aspect and let's do it right and then what all that means and also like let's plug in the racism stuff which this film does not have this film says nothing about race no no i mean there's a black guy in it and we love we love this guy we we love this actor he's the best character in the film he is not saying anything about race um, no, uh, I've, the only allusion to any sort of race thing in the original story is uh, where the narrator mentions that he's carried a gun since he was mugged, which was a real-life oh. uh, instance of Lovecraft, where I think he was mugged by oh, wow. uh, swarthy individuals, if you will. Swarthy individuals. So, yeah, which could so. be an Italian. For, you know, like, oh, yeah, well, he wasn't, he wasn't big on Italians and stuff either, by the right. way. Right. Well, <laughs> it, is, it is like if you're... I'm trying to talk about this too much on this podcast, but I know a whole lot about racism at this point. And, uh, you know, when when you look back 100 years and, like, realize that the the categories of who we're supposed to be racist against are completely different than the ones today, mm-hmm. this, is, this, is not, this is not genetically determined. This is completely socially and culturally constructed. And I'm just going to leave it at that for now. But, yeah. Um, couple little quick uh, notes on this. Editor Lee Perry saved the trims in anticipation of an extended edition down the road. So he saved them and they eventually got just dumped into a can called trims. And they just found them by mistake, basically. It's like, we have all this stuff. We can do a new restored version of this. And that's what they did. So like it was all work print stuff and they just, they found it and they brought it back. Dr. Pretorius, of course, his character is named after Dr. Septimus Pretorius from Bride of Frankenstein. 
Yep. So there's that connection there. The studio executives were opposed to casting Barbara Crampton at first because they felt she was too young to be her character. But then they make the uh, the sort of conceit here that, oh, there's Dr. McMichaels, the the girl wonder of uh, the, the the field, you know, the, right. the young upstart or whatever. So they got around she, that. She, it's not quite as bad as Dr. Christmas Jones. I mean, it doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't, it doesn't quite go no, that far. Nothing no. as bad is as bad as Dr. Christmas Jones. Let's just leave it at that. Uh, who, who, but, who, as, as we, as we know, only comes once a year. That's the only uh, comes once, which is wow, wow. What a sad fucking character. God you know, Denise like, uh, Richards only comes once a year. Yeah, apparently. Denise Richards only comes once a year. Holy fuck, is that a fucking... Apparently, apparently, Castor Van Diem is not a, a, a very good lover. That's that's what I take from no, that. No, no, fucking Starship. <laughs> she should have went into the space coffin, by the way. I'll just reiterate that. She should have been in the space coffin. <laughs> also, uh, Block. Dr. Block is clearly named after Block, who yeah, uh, and, wrote Psycho and... and yeah, and of course that was uh, that was uh, Stuart Gordon's wife as well. So, uh, oh, the actress. Yeah. Oh, nice. Yeah. She's good. Like, if, if was she a professional actress or? Uh... I don't know. if She's necessarily a professional actress, but she, I, I believe she's been in a couple of Gordon's pictures, so she has done some acting. At the very I mean, she, she, she's better than other people in this film. So if she's not a professional actress. That's actually. Um, I, I would, you know, usually like when it's the director's wife is she, she has two scenes and like, right. it's fine, you know, um, I actually think she, she's, uh, fairly good in this. Oh like, no, she's really good. She is really good. Um, I think she's probably a stage actress because, uh, or for the most part a stage actress because Stuart Gordon also does a lot of theater stuff too. So like he's, he's sure. big in that. Like they actually did a theatrical version of reanimator to the film previous to this uh, that <laughs> right. Stuart Gordon directed. So Carolyn uh, Gordon, yes, I just uh, found her name. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Budget was 4.5 million. Box office unfortunately in the US was only 1.2 million. I'd like to I'd like to point out just one more thing before we mm-hmm. I know you're wrapping up here and I'm I'm wrapping up as well. But uh, this also goes on our list of <laughs> actresses who showed their tits in something who uh <laughs> obviously are working under a fake name who uh, have been lost to history, um, which we, we talk about right. often. Uh, Regina Blees. I started, you know, once I saw, oh, there's a girl on video who uh, has like a line and doesn't appear anywhere else. I'm like, oh, who is this person? And uh, she's impossible to find anywhere. My yeah. guess is she was an Italian model or something. Um, probably, yeah. Probably. Uh, but yeah, um, she's, the, she's the girl in the video who from what you're telling me is probably, I mean, basically cut out of this film and, and for, for much decades, decades, Um, which is again, just one of those disgusting like things about our culture that does that, you know, because I just love to know who she was. I just, Mm -hmm. I just love to know, like, you know, and uh, from what, yeah, again, from 10 minutes of of trying to look online, I could find nothing about her beyond she's in this film. Yeah. It just goes right back to our kitten with whip. uh, Yeah, exactly. It's it's the same. And you see this over and over and over and over again. Right. And uh, sorry, just bringing it up one more time. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. Wackity schmackity do. The All quote, right, the great Patton Oswalt. There you go. But yeah, Daniel, tell people where they can find you on the interwebs. I'm in a couple of places on the internet. Probably the best way is to just follow me on Twitter. Uh, I'm at Daniel Lee Harper. I've got some some writing that's going to happen. It's it's getting closer in that. I'll, I'll just leave it at that for right now. But uh, 
there's a lot that's happening. You can find me. Uh, I do have a Doctor Who podcast, which isn't updated in months, and uh, some other stuff at oyspaceman.lipsa.com. Um, and hopefully we're going to start that back up soon. But I've been I've been working on a big project, and uh, that's been taking all my time, and that's why I haven't been more productive. Um, but yeah, so right. check that out. Awesome. And you can find us at tmbdos.podbean.com where you can find our iTunes, YouTube, and Facebook links. Join our Facebook group. They must be destroyed on site on Facebook where you can interact with us, leave comments, questions, yeah. criticisms, hatred, fake sex bot profiles on that are prevalent yeah. on Facebook. Send those to us. Those. I get a ton of those on my, like, just... Oh, there's some pretty girl that wants to be my friend on Facebook. I should, I should know. Don't ever say yes to that. See, I never get hardly any of those. That must be is. Do you get them because you have your uh, cell phone connected to Facebook? I do have my cell phone connected to Facebook. I don't know if that's why, but like, see, I'm kind of thinking that's what it is because I see a lot of my friends who are just fucking cell phone freaks who just use them all the time. Basically, mm-hmm. an appendage of theirs. They're always getting fake sex profiles. I'm not getting, and, it. I'm not getting it constantly. It's I get it's regular. You know, it's it's. Right. Every couple of weeks, I'll get, you know, one of them. You, you know, know I, I don't get any, and I'm starting to get a little <laughs> fucking pissed off by it, actually. They're not that, it's not, they, they can't, they can't even, like, I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's not even, like, a thing where I click on them and, like, oh, this is, like, it, it, it's, they're, like, little, little bot pointing it, like, yeah, it's just a little, stuff, you know? yeah, it's just a little yeah. bot, but, I mean, come on, where, where are all these horny Asian it, I think it girls. also depends on your friends, because I think if you've oh. got, because basically what happens is they will... I think the bots will, if someone says friends them, then it'll it'll send a request to all that person's friends, right? Ah, uh, so, so so basically, basically you don't right. have any friends that are dumb enough to click on oh, the to friend the sex bot, <laughs> and I have a couple of friends who will friend the sex bot, and I get them occasionally, and like <laughs> you're talking to people who are so dumb that they have friends who are constantly friending sex bots. I think that's the lesson here. Okay, I don't think so it has anything to do with the fact that my cell phone number is attached. Uh, to so you phone. you came up with the nicer version of that than what I was going to say. You just said my friends were you know not dumb enough to do that. Uh, I was going to say my friends weren't interesting enough in the sack to have sex bots <laughs> friending them on Facebook. No, I, well, well, I you know, not, not nothing, nothing to diss your friends, but I think the kind of people that are friending sex bots on Facebook are the least interesting people in the sack. That's probably true. Yeah, they're probably the ones looking. I mean, for like, something. like that's a class. I'm sure there are some people who friend sex bots who are perfectly, you know. <laughs> Perfectly uh, cromulent, um, you know, <laughs> with their with their sexual prowess. Uh, you know, I'm I'm not denying that, but uh, I think it's probably uh, not the way to bet if you're a betting man. Let's put it that way. Right, right. Okay, well, shit. Let's wrap this up, Daniel. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining in this week. Oh, also, wrong with authority. Wrong with authority. Yes. That's the podcast to do with the British boys, and uh, there's a Romero episode coming up. Soon it will probably not be up by the time this goes up, but it will be up soon. We will um, link it eventually. Yeah, really yeah. good. Like next week, it'll be fine. Yeah, yeah. Cheers. But uh, yeah, thank you, Daniel, and thank you everyone for listening. Don't know what we're doing next week. I'll have to convene with Paul wherever the fuck he went to, and uh, we'll figure out some more Lovecraft stuff. I think we're gonna do maybe two more Lovecraft shows before we dip into some other interesting horror stuff for a little while. So yeah, it should be a lot of fun, but until then, thank you everyone for listening and uh, we'll see you again. Bye-bye.
<laughs> Thank you for listening to They Must Be Destroyed on Sight. For past episodes and links to our iTunes, YouTube, and Facebook group, please visit us at tmbdos.podbean.com. There you can also find links to other podcasts and websites of similar interest. If you subscribe to us on iTunes, please consider giving us a 5-star rating and a review. Please join our Facebook group, as it's the single best place to get in contact with the hosts and to know what's coming up on the podcast. Thank you. Drive through. <laughs>